Welcome to Black and Gay Back in the Day. We are bringing to life an archive of images of black LGBTQ plus life in Britain from the 70s through to the early noughties. I'm Mark Thompson, an activist and health promotion specialist, and I built this archive with the journalist and writer Jason Okendaya. In this episode, we are looking at a photograph that lifts up the beauty of black love. A black and white photo of the head and shoulders of two men, one embracing the other from behind. Both men do not appear to be wearing any clothes for this intimate moment. They both have short, dreadlocked hair. We know the man in front to be Dennis Carney with a pencil-thin moustache and the man behind to be the poet and writer Essex Hemphill. In this tender moment, Essex presses his lips to the back of Dennis's neck with eyes closed. This tender image was taken by Rotimi Fanny Coyote in Brixton, in 1987. As the African-American writer Joseph Bean and the filmmaker and gay rights activist Mylon Riggs has said, black men loving black men is a revolutionary act. This quote resonates with me so much that I created an art installation at Brixton Tube Station centering the statement. I asked Jordan, a.k.a. the musician's honour, to reflect on the picture from the archive. I have here in front of me the, the picture of Dennis Carney and Essex Hemphill. Before I get to the picture, the first thing I noticed that strikes a big chord with me is the photographer who has a Yoruba name, Rotimi Fani Kayode, which, I don't know, just elicits this huge pang of like emotion in me knowing that, I don't know, there were queer Nigerians somewhere, um, and we existed way before my time. Um, I'm just going to look him up very quickly, um, just to see what he was about. Yeah, Nigerian-born photographer who moved to England at the age of 12 to escape the Civil War. And I instantly remember that my mom also tried to escape the Civil War. So yeah, it's, it's like a line of connection showing you that, you know, things happened before you and people made steps to make your life a lot more visible, I guess, which is something I'm not very used to. But back to the picture... I think the very, 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 very big thing I see about this is black intimacy, right? Black queer intimacy, which I, I'm, I might as well be a beginner to. I don't think I've had an intimate experience with someone who looks like me. I think they showcase something that I, I am working towards. I, I just by looking at the picture, it's a strong, strong illustration of intimacy codependency as well
Hi, my name is Jordan Anabogu. I'm a Nigerian Irish artist under the name Zona. So the people in the photo, the the guy in front is Dennis Carney, and the guy behind is Essex Hemphill, who I believe is an American poet who moved over to England. I'm just going to Google Essex and see some of his work, because I'm also a writer myself, and love indulging in black queer literacy. So I'm just looking through some of his work. I think just skimming through his poetry here, and he has one called Object of Desire. Oh, Object Lessons, actually, my mistake. It reads, if I'm comfortable on the pedestal you're looking at, if I'm indolent and content to lay here on my stomach, my determination's indulged and glistening in baby oil and sweat. If I want to be here, a pet, to be touched, to toy, if I choose to be liked in this way, if I desire to be object, to be sexuality in this object way, by one or two at a time, for a night or for a thousand days, for money or for power, for the awesome orgasms, to be had, to be coveted, or for my own selfish wantonness, for the feeling of being pleasure, being touched, the pedestal was here. So I climbed up, I located myself, I appropriated this context, it was my fantasy, my desire to do so, and I lie here on my stomach. Why are you looking? What do you want to do about it? The pedestal was there, so I climbed up, I located myself. You know, reading Essex poetry, especially object lessons, um, I can glean some kind of understanding into the character he was. Um, you know, I, I refer to him as a force of nature, so it'd be very interesting to see um, Dennis's recant of like his character and if he is as indelible as he seems in his poetry. Like, what marks has he made? Is he still as real to him as he was back then? I think I think one of the reasons I I'm very keen to speak to Dennis is I, I feel like this this conversation this topic is coming at a very opportune time as someone who has lived possibly multiple intimate experiences with men both of color or, or just gay men in general I, I think there are a lot of things I just want to know about love and the transience of love and like if he's learned any lessons if there's an absolute truth that you know you can't deny and you can't get away from and things like that hey dennis how are you this fine tuesday evening 
I'm very well, Jordan, <laughs> especially seeing your happy smiley face. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's great to finally sit down and do this with you. Um, I'm hoping to learn a lot. I am eager, mostly honored, but very eager to just like get into the picture. Um, just see what it was like for you in the path that you have that has brought you here essentially and um yeah and contributing and what you can teach me and all of that how does seeing the picture make you feel Ooh, well how does seeing the picture make me feel well i guess it always makes me feel positive good mm. inside warm fuzzy feelings I guess. <laughs> rare to find in london <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and you know that was that picture was taken a very kind of significant time in my life you know mm. um, how old were you in it? gosh i must have been about 25 26 yeah. and i was involved in an organization called BLGC, the Black Lesbian and Gay Centre Project, and I was the chair. Mm. And whilst I was at BLGC, BLGC organised the very first tour for Essex Hempel in the UK, and and that's how I got to meet him. Oh. And what was the first meeting where, like, can you remember? Oh, gosh, I will never forget <laughs> the first time I met Essex Hempel. <laughs> never, ever, ever. Um I never forget because I it was he'd done his first performance. I can't remember where, but after uh, there was an after party at Dirk Arb Richards' mm -hmm. house where Essex was staying, and I went along. <laughs> and halfway through the evening, Essex and I got talking about one of his poems, and from that very first time that. He spoke. I don't think we stopped speaking until he went back to the states. Yeah. So we start from there, and now we're at the picture. How how did the picture come about? What was it right. for? Um, okay. Well, Rotomi, uh, Rotomi Fanikiogi was a good friend of mine. Yeah. And he was uh, an aspiring photographer looking for models. And he was, at the time, exploring nude photography. Mm. And at that time, it was really difficult, actually, to find people who were willing enough to take their clothes off in front of a camera. Mm. And so he found me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We start, for me, i never forget, I was absolutely terrified. Yeah? Yeah. I was really scared of doing... Were you new... scared of the camera or the consequences after the camera? Yeah, I think I think I was more scared with the consequences, yeah. I think. Yeah. I was more scared about that because, you know, Rotomi was, like I say, a very good friend. Mm. I trusted him yeah. and all of that. It was more... How afterwards. would it live on? Yeah. yeah. And you see, back then, it's a very different world to today. You know, mm -hmm. today you can just pick up your phone... And if you want to see a naked photograph, yeah, seconds. Whereas back then, it wasn't as easy to mm. achieve. Uh, this is long before the internet. So, yeah, so anyway, Rotomi was looking for models to do this. And um, I said, yeah, okay. And then uh, I think I brought Essex along. Mm. And that's how that happened. Fair enough. 
And I guess this was, yeah, when that picture was taken, this was probably a week after we'd met. Oh, wow. Because I, I was going to move on to that. I was going to right. say that, like, there's a lot that is conveyed from this picture. And I wanted to know how long had, like, how much yeah. time had so, elapsed. Yeah, it was about a week or so, a week and a half. So you Time was fast when you're having fun. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and so we were in the throes of a romance. Yeah. And it was very intense. And that definitely comes that, along. And I think the picture across. captures that intensity uh, and this kind of strength of feeling on both yeah. sides. Um, There's yeah. something, I, I think, for, for you it was a week. For, for the rest of us who get to see it now, I look at it and I'm like, I remember um, I was at the George Michael commemoration thing in Hampstead Heath maybe a couple of weeks ago, and Ted Brown mm-hmm. was giving a talk and he said one of the most like, soul-staring things I've heard in a long time. And he said, um, don't ever feel like um, there it, there weren't people who were there for you. Like, don't ever feel removed from the people who came before you. And for me, being queer in Ireland, no one came before you. You're there, you're the first, well, not the first, but like, you can't see anybody around it. And I see this picture, and the first thing that hits me is like, he was right. There's a Nigerian photographer taking the picture. There is a there is a portrayal of intimacy that like you had to go run and look for in like minuscule places. And it makes it, it makes you feel like, you know, you belong somewhere and you belong to something. So like thank you for that. There'll be a lot of thanking. <laughs> There'll be a lot of thanking through that. Another big thing I can see through this is like intimacy. It comes across so strong. Was Essex your first um uh foray into like no. Essex will always have a very, very special place in in mm. my heart. Uh, he's a man I will never forget mm. uh, till the day I die. And um, if I'm being really honest, I think I haven't met anybody uh, who comes even close to the human that Essex was, mm. the incredible human that he was. I've never up until that point met any man like him and I don't think I've met another man like him since. Mm. He really um, had a massive impact on my life and I would say for the most part in a really positive way. I think the thing that I always treasure about Essex is that he really believed in me. He saw me. That's what I felt like. I felt Mm. like he really understood me um, I didn't have to explain. We didn't have to explain. We just we just connected. It was yeah. it was a real powerful experience for me. I mean, you say this picture is one week old, but like <laughs> the the like overwhelming feeling of codependency off it, like the the idea that one person's eyes is open and the other person is so willingly able to just trust them, nearly like you're being led somewhere, is. Outside, outside, um, like race or anything in the human like experience. That's that's kind of what you're working towards. That's one of the one of the three big things that hit me. Outside all of this, at the end of my life, that's all I kind of want. I just want the ability to look back on my life and know that someone really saw me, as you say, and I could truly be in another time zone and know that more than anything in the world, RuPaul says it, that more than anything in the world, that that man loves me. Yeah. And I could doubt everything else, but more than anything in the world, that man in a different time zone is just like, 
I'm the first thing on his mind. Yeah, and I don't think there's anything more beautiful than what you've just shared. I, d- I like, you. honest to God, it, you are living proof that you can find it or it finds you. But yeah, that's the true gift, right? At the yeah. end of it. And for the lucky ones, it finds us more than once. <laughs> okay, so off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think you said that you ran into Essex in a very, maybe I'm paraphrasing, transformative part of your life where it was very poignant. Um, what did it feel like loving in that world back then that didn't really nurture it? Yeah. I remember, you know, when I was in my 20s, early 20s, going to parties, black gay parties, and you would, to get in, you would have to knock on the door with a secret code. Yeah. Otherwise, the door would not open. (laughs) That's the kind of world that I lived in. Mm. Um, uh, It was, it felt very hostile world. It didn't feel safe. It felt like I could be attacked at any moment simply because of who I was and who mm. I loved. And that world feels very different now. Mm. I can remember when I first uh, realised I was gay, I think it was about 16. Well, it was long before then, actually. Mm. But, <laughs> but you know, consciously I thought, let me go to the library to find out what it's like to be gay and what it means. Did you and know I, what the word was? Not really. That's why I, I went to I the library. The yeah, I had the exact same thing. Yeah, I went to the library, and all I could find was that I was sick, was the lowest of the low. Um, and that experience set me on a journey, actually, mm. to where I am today, I think, if I'm being honest, because I remember thinking, I really didn't want another 16-year-old to go through what I went through when I was 16. I didn't want him to go away from that library hating himself mm. or disbelieving in himself or believing the, the lies that were being said mm. in, the, in these books. And I have to say, uh, I'm really glad that now that a 16-year-old can walk into my local library and find Brother to Brother or In the Life or a whole range of different books by black gay writers Mm. which wasn't available to me when I was uh, 16 and in those books contains a four letter word that is said often in those books L-O-V-E and for me it was love that brought my awareness of my sexuality and I think Mm. in the discussions about sexuality and identity and all that kind of stuff that is one four letter word that is very rarely rarely used when talking about love between men or Mm. love between women whatever you want to call it same gender loving Mm. yeah and I think um, I want to make sure that that four letter word is always present when I think about uh, relationships between between men or same sex relationships because I think for me it was the love of Essex the, the, uh, for example that really empowered me yeah. in a way that I don't think anything in my life has yeah. empowered me in the same way yeah you know and knowing that knowing who he was knowing that um, he was a very smart thoughtful uh, sensitive human and that he thought highly of me 
God, it's just like it's you know this poor yeah this poor little boy from Manchester. It's it's completely mind blowing. Yeah, I, yeah, like, yeah. I only was able to gather up. I don't know the inner motivation to write like an album when I fell in love properly at like twenty eight, <laughs> so two years ago, and I completely co-sign what you're saying. I I think, and now that it's gone, I'm just kind of like, what do you do? Like uh. what, like, but I I know what it's like to feel like your world's on fire um, because someone's looking at you and they like look right through you and they see everything and they remember you and they're thinking of you when you're like not even cognizant of it that is a gift head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. But I, I want to go back very, very briefly, and this is my second thanks, to um, you saying that you didn't want to leave that library at 16 while not feeling, uh, well, making sure that no other 16-year-old felt like that. And uh, there's a thing I read from E.E. Cummings that says uh, you have to say who you are loudly for someone who's lost and someone who's not yet born. And um, like for you to have that and still have like that effect on me even now, just seeing the picture, and I'm just kind of like... You're not alone. It happened. It happened, and de- because of it, you happened. So, like, thank you for that. Like, thank you for taking up that banner and that crusade. And, like, we don't always get our adulation, the things that we need. And we don't do it for the adulation, I guess. It should be said that because you were, I mean, I can freely, like, do whatever I want to do. Well, thank you. And, you know, I mean, I think, yeah, I think... um I think a lot of younger black queer people particularly um, really don't know that there was a really vibrant and active black queer community way back. And if it, so for example, there wouldn't have been a UK black pride in 2022 if there wasn't a BLGC back in 1984, Yeah, for example. And I think there is a direct lineage between there and where we are today. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that is completely completely true, and it 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 it, it does suck that it takes this long to find it out. I mean, where I grew up, my my own world that didn't nurture. I mean, I I grew up in a world that didn't nurture it until I I kind of made a new world that like nurtured it and went and found my new world. My friends are my world now. I, I grew up in the middle of Ireland where. They just didn't know what to do with me. Mm. And I was like, oh, well, I can't tell my mom. And at that stage when I found out, my reaction was polar opposite. Well, not polar opposite to yours. As soon as it happened, I was like, I know what I am. Mm. I don't care. It's fine. It's fine. I won't ever have to talk about it. And I, I noticed that pattern in everything I do now. It leads me to my next question where I'm like, did you feel loved within the queer community? Because I, I feel like maybe my queer community in Ireland where it was like very white-centric I didn't necessarily feel loved there. I felt like a, of a particular type. 
Um, and I didn't know how to derive love from that for a long time. So like we've gone from the like the world scale into like just like mm. within the queer communities where it was like a mixed yeah well I mean I have to say in terms of um, mainstream gay community no I have not felt a lot of love mm. at all in fact I will never forget the very first uh, gay venue that I went to back in Manchester gay bar and I walked around I was so scared mm. no in fact before I went out the house I remember thinking. Oh, Dennis, don't worry, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. You know, they they know what discrimination feels yeah. like. So they won't discriminate against you. You'll be fine. They won't discriminate against you because you're black. So that's what I told myself to galvanise my confidence. Mm-hmm. And I got there and I walked round and around and around the venue to pick up the courage. And every time I walked round, I saw white men, white gay men going into that venue, no questions asked. And then as soon as I got to the door, oh, you do know it's a gay club, mate. Uh, 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 question, 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 yeah, question, yeah. question. I was 18, mm. 19. And I have lost count in my lifetime when I've gone to mainstream venues how many times that has happened. Mm. That's just one example yeah. of the lack of love I've felt within the gay scene. And there are countless yeah. examples of that, if I think about it. And so... <clears throat> In some ways, though, you know, there's a there's a uh, silver lining or the flip side of the coin, I guess, on that, is that what that experience did is it pushed me to much more towards a black queer community, mm-hmm. and it pushed me into black queer activism. Actually, those experiences of racism on the mainstream casing, especially when I told myself that that shouldn't be there, yeah, because. You know, they know what discrimination feels like. Mm. Why would they discriminate against other people? I, I would hope that we wouldn't have to go through it. But it does make us who we are and um, yeah. why, <laughs> like, I, I've had situations. I mean, the the culture in Ireland, Ireland around, like, people of colour have shifted a lot because, mm-hmm. I mean, there's more of us now. But I remember the whole um, preference versus, like, hey, I think you're being racist talk. Mm. And you have a room full of white people who are just like it's just my preference and then you sound insane in the room where i'm like no it's not your preference come on but you i mean it, it um it definitely like adds this fire to you and you read about it and you learn more about it and you're better off in the end you truly are better off in the end because you're well learned What is the truth that you've come to accept about love? I think there was a line that I heard about 20 years ago, a definition of love by a man called Stanley Kellerman. And the definition goes like this. To love someone is the willingness to educate them about all of who you are and what you want. And when I first heard this, I thought, what does this dead old white man know? (laughs) Please. But I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought, you know what? He's got a point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I really do subscribe to that definition of love. I think the easy part for me when it comes to that definition is educating people about who I am. Yeah. But the most 
difficult part of that definition is asking for what I want mm. from the man that I love, mm. or even people that I love, generally speaking. I think asking for what you want is a real challenge, yeah. especially when you've grown up in a world that tells you, because yeah. of who you are, you cannot have yeah. that. Yeah. I feel like I've said it too many times that it loses value, but it was a complete pleasure. Thank you. It was an honor. Well, thank you, Jordan. And thank you for helping me to make a bit more sense of what was going on for me back then um, because you know it's not something I've really talked about actually if I think about it it's certainly not publicly like this yeah and so thank you this has been a really really enjoyable experience and I want you're you to know that you're more than welcome Hey Jordan, how you doing? Hi, how are you? I'm really well, it's great to finally meet you. It is great to meet you too. Thank you for having me, thank you for this entire experience, it's been completely rewarding. Well it's just wonderful for us that you've decided to go on this journey and, mm. and meet some of our elders and to meet the absolutely amazing, iconic Dennis <laughs> Carney. The character. The character, yeah. The yeah. myth, the character. <laughs> I mean I've known Dennis since um, I was much younger. Mm. Um, <laughs> we both were. Um, so how was it for you meeting Dennis? Um, yeah, as I was saying, it was very, very rewarding. I think. Um, he just has a way of illustrating his point so well and when he speaks you completely believe it and it was just it was like for the first time someone was teaching me that like you showing me a path uh because i think a lot of it a lot of my queerness and a lot of my like coming of age was just me figuring it out for myself so it's nice to see someone who's much further along who has some absolute truths that they can pass on to you I think like a lot of his answers were very soul stirring so yeah it was very very rewarding because I don't think I've ever I don't think I've ever had a conversation with a, a black queer elder at all I don't even I don't know any so it was definitely a once in a lifetime and I kept saying and I I hoped it wasn't trite or any of that I I, I just kept thanking him so much because I'd never had that experience before and it, yeah it's one I'll remember so yeah I mean, that's amazing that, you know, you get to connect with somebody with so much history who is an elder and can pass that stuff on. What were some of the things that you spoke about? We spoke a lot about love. I remember one of the, the things I asked him was like, what's an absolute truth you've learned about love? And it's like, you, know, you, you don't own anybody and you have to be comfortable to tell them who you are and also ask for what you want. And he was like... The longer you live, the more true that statement will become. <laughs> and I look forward to it. I like I realize elements of my life where I can't do that yet. And it's just nice to know that there's there's some things that are absolute truths that like, you know, someone is passing on to you and maybe it makes the journey a lot less arduous, you know? Yeah, I, I enjoyed how he talked about how real Essex still is to him, like all these years later, how it's still the most it's like a a flagship or, or something, it's still so, so indelible in his life, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think is interesting about love and, and relationships, particularly for black queer men, is that very often we're not, we're not taught that. And part of 
the wonderful stuff around Essex's work alongside the collective of Joseph Bean and Marlon Riggs was pushing this idea of black men loving black men as a revolutionary mm. act. Was that talked about in your conversation? How did that kind of... Yeah, I think there was a moment I asked him, I, I kind of tried to talk about the tears of love. How did you feel love from the world around you? How did you feel love within the community? Because uh, for me, I would have had to go find elements of it in places, but never really see myself reflected. And it was really interesting just seeing how he navigated all of that and how he found a great black queer love such a young age and seeing that I like someone like me wishes that they saw that when they were much younger when they were like 10 11 12 so they knew that they belonged to something as opposed to I said you know my first representation of queerness was like Desperate Housewives and the couple the gay couple in there and you know I'm like I'm gay but I'm not white so I, I can kind of take a glean something from here it was good to see that like you know even all the way back then, that was still a thing. That was Taylor's oldest time or whatever. I don't know. It's just it just made it very real for me and that validated me in some way. You know, I, I mean, absolutely. You know, when I was growing up, you know, I I didn't see those images at all, and so we had to kind of dream, and imagine. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's like a part of your brain that wasn't filled out properly yet. And like maybe you just never looked at yourself as something that was desirable, or like even from your own community. So. I, I shudder to think of ways that affected me in my formative periods. And sometimes I, I kind of see it and I, like I'm trying to unlearn and move forward. So like this conversation was rewarding, even just like stuff I sit with uh, and like in time kind of realize. Yeah, very grateful for it. Yeah. So you spoke about growing up and mm. not seeing the images like you've seen in the archive mm. today. Has anything changed today? Just seeing the picture originally was just something that, like, I don't know, something that was unlocked in me, and maybe it'll take time for me to, like, elaborate on what the feeling is. It's, it's, I've never had a black queer relationship, like, not a partner, and it's something that I didn't, I, I was never with a black person until, I think, 2016. And I've been an active gay person um, since, like, 20, I don't know, 2010. Um, so it wasn't until I visited London and saw stuff like that and like opened myself up to it because where I grew up was very very like it's it's burgeoning and it's opening up in its views and all of that but it just wasn't something that was available to me but seeing history and seeing um, seeing that it existed before you came makes you feel like you belong to something and you're standing on the shoulders of people who have worked for you and I never really always I, I never really felt like that I just felt like an outsider on everything. Like, I don't feel that connected to, like, my Nigerian, like, ancestry kind of thing. I don't see myself in them because I don't see anyone who's like me. And that's kind of like a thing that, you know, you carry around but never really vocalize. So seeing that picture of them is just something that you just need to see. You sometimes don't need to explain it. You just, you need to see it to know that, like, it happened and you aren't alone. So that's kind of like what's kind of starting to change for me. Mm -hmm. When I see, like, I have queer friends, black queer friends now who are in black relationships, and I, it just unlocks something in me, and I'm like, oh, okay. Just seeing it is the, the remedy itself. I mean, we celebrate, you know, there, there's lots of talk about, you know, love is love, and, and mm. love wins, those, those catchphrases that always yeah, yeah, pour yeah. out. But, you know, I'm a great believer in celebrating black love. Yeah. You know, wh wherever that shows up, 
and I'm really glad that this picture kind of demonstrates that yeah. and it had an impact on you. How is that going to try to change the way that you write, the way that you create going forward? I think, I'm waiting to see, but I, I, I think um, learning about the, their relationship, his relationship with Essex, and how it's still so real and so strong to him. I think there was something very endearing knowing that, like, you know, the loves that I've had in the past, maybe I, I fear I will forget them. I always fear that, like, you know, it's passing. It won't live on as long as possible. But I look forward to the lessons and I, I look forward to, like, maybe throwing myself more deeply into it and asking questions and telling them what I want and not being afraid to um, show them fully, like, what I'm about. Because I think in my past three relationships, there's been a there was a line I wrote recently where I was like, I always have to fold half of me away to make sure that you'll stay. And that's something I always, always do, because I feel like if people knew maybe 60 percent of what I was comfortable with, um, whether it's like showing them my family or showing them my real accent or like telling them about how I got to Europe or any of that. Talking to him made me understand that when you find someone who loves you, most of that stuff will be just accepted anyway because you do it to other people. So you're not alone. Like someone will accept you and like it'll be wonderful when that happens. So, yeah, um, that will definitely influence my writing. <laughs> and it, I mean, it sounds like you had a great conversation. It was enlightening and mm. inspired you. Was there anything that you found challenging about the conversation at all? Not challenging. I think the only time we ever had a, um, it's, it's me trying to navigate my relationship with my mother. That's like the biggest thing I've done this year. And I don't think that there, there was um, anything I could use, but it, it, was, it showed that like at least not all of us are damned to the like, and, uh, like estrangement from our families. Um, so that was good to see. I think that would be the only thing where I, was, I, I, I know that my reality is that I'm literally facing a, a, an immovable object. Mm -hmm. I cannot get around it. I wish there was someone who could just tell me what to do or tell her <laughs> what to do. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was that was the only thing. And I wouldn't say it was difficult. I, I, actually, I, I walked away from it just knowing that, like, you know, there are families that are happy and maybe that should inform my like my psyche that there is hope like it's not impossible for plc parents um really religious parents um to accept their kids so like yeah i'll always put a spin on something but yeah yeah that that was definitely maybe the only part of it that i maybe thought we came at it differently yeah but that's the beauty of these intergenerational conversations mm. right is that we are bringing different parts of ourselves, these different experience which experiences which are separated sometimes mm. by decades. But clearly there are some deep similarities between the two of you. Mm. And um, if you need a mom to have a chat with your mom, my mom is for hire and she's really good at doing that <laughs> kind of stuff. And she's talking to lots of black moms about yeah. telling them to fix up. So uh, yeah, honestly, honestly, I think that that was what was advised to me. They were like, I, my therapist was just kind of like, I think she needs someone like her to explain to her because you have to understand that like it's intergenerational and she's different and yeah so yeah <laughs> mom's for hire mom's for hire <laughs> Jordan it's been incredible to talk to you and thank you so much for sharing yourself and sharing your time with Dennis really appreciate it thank you so much
I've been your host, Mark Thompson. The reporter in this episode was Jordan, aka the musician Zona. You can find the picture we've discussed in today's episode and all the images talked about throughout this podcast on Instagram at Black and Gay Back in the Day. And drop us a message if you have something you want to submit to the archive. A link will be available in the show notes. Coming up next week on Black and Gay Back in the Day... Black and Gay Back in the Day is an Art Nell production based on the archive created by myself and Jason Okendaya. The producers are Shivani Dave and Tash Walker. The assistant producer is Abby McIntosh. Mixing was by Adam Smith. The music is composed and performed by Amaru. The executive producers were Mark Thompson and the Aunt Nell team. Artwork was by Kemi Oleyade. Thanks to Content is Queen, The Glass House, The Audio Content Fund, Gadio, Bishopsgate Institute and all of our contributors. A special thank you to all of those past and present who have fought for Black queer liberation.